Hello and welcome. We're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. But that's not where it ends and sometimes we think the death and burial, the resurrection, that's it. That's not it. He ascended and we read that word ascended as if he flew up like Superman. It's not ascended like fly up like Superman. It's come up into his glory. Consider, if you will, the person of Jesus Christ. Just a notable character, or does he warrant the title most often used to describe him, that being Lord? In the Bible, Jesus was referred to as Lord, and nothing could be more true, because that's exactly what he was and is. Jesus spoke with such authority, and his actions confirmed his lordship. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues in his series on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Father, it's my heart now to set a hedge of protection around those that you've entrusted into my care. Father, I pray that as I preach, people will feel the strength of your word, your presence and your spirit. That, Father, some may even sense your arms being wrapped around them now. That, Father that as we open your word, your word would speak to us in a way, God, that would cause us to worship. Now, Lord, I pray, help me to do this. And at the end of this, may people get a grander, more glorious vision of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Would you, if you've got your Bibles, and I really hope you do, would you please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I want to have you just hold that there for a moment. Because in verses 15 and 16, I'm going to use those verses in a moment. And it's kind of anchoring this series, The Lordship of Christ. It's with... This in mind, that as I read through the Psalms, and currently I'm reading through the Psalms, and, and as Kim would know, because it's assisting sometimes her insomnia that I, I read things sometimes in Hebrew. And, and as Kate came and had a five-minute Hebrew lesson with me before the service so she could go, oh, um, uh, the, in, in the Psalms, we, we have oftentimes the psalmists longing to be with God, longing to be in his presence. And in a moment, I'm, I'm going to say that for many people, that sounds like they want to go to heaven. And I'm going to challenge that from God's word in a moment. But right now, I'm, I'm it, having you hold that place because we're going to come there in a moment. It was four o'clock in the afternoon. A hot Mediterranean day when John the Baptist had been baptising people all day. He'd already baptised Jesus, his cousin, when he heard the voice of God say, This is my beloved Son. And John the Baptist heard the voice of the Father. He saw the second person of the Trinity walking into the water. And then after Christ came up out of the water, he saw the Holy Spirit come down as if a dove would have come down onto Jesus. In other words, John the Baptist was the only person in human history that experienced a simultaneous encounter with the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, right there. At four o'clock the next day, we read this. 
The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, Agnes Day, the Lamb of God. Two of his disciples heard him. They heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version, what are you seeking? The New International Version, the New Living Translation and the New English Translation, they don't render it, what are you seeking? They render it, what do you want? Jesus turns to these two men and says to them, what do you want? And that's the question I have for you today as we look at this. You've come to church, thank you, thank you, but what do you want? What do you want? I've, as a pastor over the, the years, and I'm now into my 29th year of pastoring this church, it has been the delight of my life, the greatest privilege to do that. And over that time, I've had people who've come to me and they perhaps are feeling low. Perhaps they're feeling like life is just too much at the moment. And I will ask them sometimes, what do you want? What is it that would make you happy? What would turn your situation around? And oftentimes when you're so low, you don't know. And when Jesus says to these two men, what do you want? They gave a great answer. What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and you'll see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Four o'clock in the afternoon, getting ready for dinner. It's late in the day. They came to Jesus. He asked them, what do you want? What are you seeking? And they said, to be with you. To be with you. It struck me when, as a young teenager, the words of, the, of Paul's statement in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, absolutely struck me when I realized Paul's writing this in prison under Praetorian guard. If you've done our Rejoice Bible study series where we look at the, Paul's epistle to the Philippians, he's about to be beheaded and he knows it. His time is up. And then he says this in Philippians 3.10, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. This is amazing. Paul had encountered the physical Jesus on the road to Damascus. He, unlike the other disciples who had spent three years with the, as John read the Nicene Creed, the incarnate Jesus, the, the Jesus who smelt of sweat, the Jesus who toileted where they toileted, the Jesus who went to the marketplace and rubbed against people as they bumped and jostled him. That Jesus is what the disciples met and knew and saw that's not the Jesus that Paul encountered on the road to Damascus. He encountered Jesus in such blinding glory, he went blind. For the light was so bright that emanated out of Christ. And yet Paul, who, writing to the Corinthians, he said, my longing to know Christ richly meant there was a time then when 
I don't know if I was dead or alive, but I was caught up into the third heaven where Jesus was and I saw him and I heard things that I'm not allowed to repeat. And then to the Philippians, he writes, at the end of his life, I want to know him. And I remember as a teenage boy thinking, what is this Christianity thing where it's a journey to know Christ in an unfathomable way. In other words, you can't plumb the depths of the knowledge that is to be found in knowing Christ. Little wonder, C.S. Sorry, it is C.H. Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He said this in a in an essay that he wrote on the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. This, that was the title of it. Where. I'm taking a snippet out of that. He said, No subject more completely surpasses the ministers, that is, the preacher's ability, than to talk about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. No subject completely, more completely surpasses his knowledge. He, he said, Upon no theme is the true minister such at home and yet completely out of his depth to talk about it. We love the subject, he says, Though we are lost in it, it is possible to describe all other things more or less accurately, but words are not capable of setting forth the redeeming grace and the dying love of the Lord Jesus. Yet we would fain be confined to this one topic of life and yet be set free to speak of nothing else but our beloved Lord Jesus. Wow. I remember, again, as a teenager, I heard the story of a, a, a group of about four or five pastors that went from America to London, where there was, at that time, there was Archibald G. Brown, considered one of the greatest preachers on the planet. There was other preachers there and Charles Spurgeon. And it seems that, that what Charles Spurgeon had done when he turned up in London, having started pastoring at the age of 16, he went to London at the age of 19 to pastor a church where they couldn't get a pastor. It was right on the River Thames and every so often the Thames would flood, the church would stink to high heaven because of the dampness and mildew and the only pastor they could get was this 19-year-old kid from the country who spoke with a y'all accent as far as y'all accents happen in northern England. And so this, this young man, he loved Jesus and he began to preach about Jesus and suddenly that church of, well not suddenly, that church of 140 that sat 500 had 3,000 people turning up every Sunday to hear him preach about Jesus. And when these visiting American pastors came, they'd moved into a 6,000 seat building called Metropolitan Tabernacle. And when they'd heard all these other preachers, they then went and heard Charles Spurgeon and their assessment of this. Each time they went and heard Archibald G. Brown and these others, they would say, boy, no wonder he's considered one of the greatest preachers. He's a great preacher. That was amazing preaching. Then they'd go to the next one at East London Tabernacle and they'd go, wow, that's even better. He's a great preacher. Then at the end of the day, one of the five services that Spurgeon had or so on the Sunday, they went to hear him preach and they came out of there going, what a great saviour. What a great saviour. And that's kind of my hope now. And I'm already, I've already told you, it's next to impossible, according to Spurgeon, to do this. This brings me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 to 16. I charge you, Paul writes in his second last, after writing Philippians, he wrote this one and then he wrote 2 Timothy, then he was 
executed. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession as we heard this morning in the Nicene Creed to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, that's what Paul saw, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honour and eternal dominion. Amen. And the point there is, as I read Charles Spurgeon, he, he goes on to say, the more I prepare to preach on this topic the more I drop to my knees in worship and I find the Apostle Paul doing exactly the same thing he wants to remind his charge Timothy of who he is actually serving and the more he talks about Jesus the more it begins to sound like worship and so what I want you to do now is to be open to what God might do in you that will lead you to worship I said about the psalmist, the psalmist cry out for this longing, this longing to know God. The Korahites in Psalm 42, the leader of the Korahites at this time, after David, as things began to go south, really, at a rapid pace of knots in Israel, the worshipper, the worship leader of Israel, this Korahite, which means he was descended from the Levite Korah, he says in Psalm 42 of his longing to know God, to experience God, to come to experience him in a way that's not just, oh yeah, but a way that says, oh wow. He says in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams for water, so my soul pants for you, O God, my soul Psalm 42, verse 2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist described his longing for God as being like a deer parched on the heat of a day, longing for a drink. And he says, this is how I feel about wanting to know God. I want to know God. Like I want water to parch my thirst in my soul. This theme became a recurrent theme for Jews who were sincere about their relationship with God. And so we find Jesus in something that you could read and go, oh yeah, whatever. No, it's not, please, I'm sorry, it's not. But on the last day of the feast it says, the great day the day when the priests came out of the temple with sacred buckets of water and poured them to show this water came from God and this is the water that quenches thirst. As they were doing that, Jesus stood up and cried out, seeing this scene happening in the temple precinct, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he says the same thing to you right now. Right now. Come and drink of me. Don't treat me as something you get out of your wardrobe on a Sunday. Put me on. 
and wear me. Drink of me, he said. John tells us now this, he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. But guess what? Jesus is now glorified. This happened after he conquered sin and death by rising back to life. He conquered sin and death. But that's not where it ends. And sometimes we think the death and burial, the resurrection, that's it. That's not it. He ascended. And we read that word ascended as if he flew up like Superman. It's not ascended like fly up like Superman. It's come up into his glory. Back into his glory. Jesus is now glorified. Do the maths. If the Spirit hadn't been given until Jesus was glorified, he's now glorified. Guess what God is doing now in the earth? Giving his Spirit. You may be spiritually dry. You may never have had an experience with the Holy Spirit, but you can right now. Right now. If you will come and drink of Jesus the Lord, I was listening to N.T. Wright, one of the most brilliant New Testament scholars on the planet. I was going to say today, but I'm going to take it, put it out there and say ever. He is the man. I'm thinking of getting a T-shirt that says N.T. Wright is the man. And if he ever comes into this church, which is not likely, I'll wear it. Until then, I won't. So when Jesus ascended... That means he vanished and went into glory, translated into glory. Ten days later, after this event, he sent the Holy Spirit on what's known as the day of Pentecost. And he sent the Holy Spirit to fill believers. They were already saved. Their names, Jesus told them, rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Your names are already, you're already saved. You're already right with God, but now they had the Holy Spirit come and fill them. Jesus said, he's been with you, but on that day, he'll be in you. And when that happens, you're made new. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. So when Christ sent the Holy Spirit, it marked a new beginning, a new epoch in human history. But it can be a new moment in your life. There can be a line on the page of your life that says, before I encountered Christ, before he filled me with his Spirit, and then after. This is because Jesus Christ is Lord. And Paul, who encountered Christ as Lord. And N.T. Wright said this. That when he translated the New Testament, in the first translation of the Gospels, he didn't want to use the word Christ because people think it's Jesus' surname. Like Andrew Corbett, Corbett the surname, Jesus Christ, Christ, his dad must have been Mr. Christ. It, that, it's a title. That's why you'll hear me say, Jesus the Christ. And N.T. Wright wanted to emphasize this, and so he translated originally the Gospels where that occurred as, how do I convey what this means? That it's not a name, it's a title of authority. And so he translated it, and reasonably so, because Christ actually means anointed one. That's what it means. And he said, in the Old Testament, who were the people that were anointed? Prophets, priests, and kings. And so he said, king. So he translated it 
wherever the word Christ appeared in the Gospels, he translated that word into English as the King. The King. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because when Christ came, he came preaching the Kingdom. The Kingdom. And so to become a Christian means you come into a kingdom where Christ is king of your life. It might be hard for us to have respect for a king at this point in history, but Christ is the king. He's the real king. He's the king of kings we've just read in 1 Timothy. And Paul could say this, now we are released from the law, the old way. The line on the page has been drawn, having died to what held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. You see, when Christ ascended it back into glory and was re-glorified, he took his glory back that he laid aside to become a man. Hear the, the weight of this statement, please. Jesus became a man, a human being. And from that point on, the immutable God, the second person of the Trinity, would always forever be a human being. We have now in heaven, seated at the right hand of God, a human being. There is now the second, there is, get this, the second member of the Holy Trinity is a human being. Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, this is outstanding to consider this. And it's so important because the pathway that Jesus has established is a path that we who know Christ now, we will all go on that path. We will be human beings for the rest of our days. In fact, as I wrote this week in the pastor's desk about true man, this is what got me thinking about this in the Lordship of Christ. Christ is the true man. He's the real deal. He's the perfect human being. He was 100% God, 100% man. And you go, yeah, pastor, I've got some questions about that. Don't worry, I've got some questions about that. A group of bishops met in Chalcedon about 454 AD and they had questions about this. They said, how does that work? How do you work out that someone's 100% God and 100% man? The two are not diffused. They're not mingled. It's one person. They said, we don't know. We're going to have to invent a word for it. And the word they invented for it was the hypostatic union of Christ. Now, if you're into big words, that's your word for today. The hypostatic union of Christ, which means he's 100% God, 100% man. When he became incarnate, that was how he would forever be. Forever be. This is a big deal. And Paul tells us that at that moment, when he, the enthroned, re-enthroned, re-glorified Lord of heaven and earth, sat on his throne... And he sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, very significant timing. He began to do something new. Paul says, it's the new way of the Spirit. Jesus says in the closing chapters of the book of the Bible, the whole Bible, the closing chapters, he says this, Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. And he who was seated on that throne, on the throne, said, Behold, I am making 
all things, what's that word? New. All things new. He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Therefore, Paul could write to the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what creation? New creation. You see, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How is this possible? Because Jesus Christ is now Lord. No one has a claim over him. Death doesn't have a claim over him. He is Lord. He is the God of this world. He has defeated all other imposters who claim it falsely. And here's the deal. You don't have to wait to die to go to heaven to experience Christ's lordship. That newness that he offers by the Holy Spirit coming into you and you begin to talk differently, you begin to think differently, you begin to feel differently, you begin to prioritise things in a different way because something new is happening in you. Something new is happening in you. And as you walk with Christ, in years to come, someone could meet you and go, What's different about you? Because we're supposed to be becoming renewed. I'm making all things new, including you. If you're in Christ, he's making you new. Things you couldn't do before, you may be able to now if he calls you to do it. He changes your heart. He changes your affections. He changes you in a positive way. He makes all things new. This was, in, this was referred to in the Eternity newspaper. We've got Eternity magazines out there. And this was in the Examiner. Let's see, that's uh, last Saturday. And it's the story of Danny Abdullah. Why aren't you filled with hate, Danny? After all, he killed three of your children and one of their cousins, they were just kids dreaming of ice cream on a sweltering summer evening when he came out of nowhere, crazed on booze and drugs. His powerful ute, a two-tone, out-of-control missile. How do you keep doing it, Danny? Why aren't you consumed with murderous rage? He'd been tailgating cars, flipping his middle finger at other drivers, swerving maniacally, bare-chested and laughing from one lane to another before his car mounted that footpath, before he ploughed into those kids without even touching the brakes. Before he destroyed so many lives, he was speeding at more than 130 kilometres an hour in a 50-kilometre-an-hour zone. You're a man of deep faith, Danny. A Maronite Catholic, a Christian. You know there are places in the Bible that say it's all right to take an eye for an eye, a wound for a wound, a life for a life. Most of us would understand if vengeance burned inside you. We might have looked the other way had you decided to get even. But you're a better person than most of us, Danny. That's for sure. You're unlike so many in today's world. You understand and appreciate what Martin Luther King meant when he said the old law of an eye for an eye leaves everybody blind. The rest of us struggle with that, Danny, mightily. 
We think about exacting revenge for the smallest of personal slights. We're so sodden with pride, so filled with our own self-importance. We nurse and nourish our petty grudges throughout our lives. Yet this week you revealed that you'd recently visited that killer, that killer of your children, Samuel Davidson in prison. You revealed that you shook his hand. You revealed that you told him you forgive him. It's almost four years since Davidson took the lives of your 13-year-old son, Anthony, your daughters, Angelina, 12, Sienna, 8, and along with their 11-year-old cousin, Veronica Suck. It had been a hot February day in 2020, around 7.30pm. You decided to empower the kids to bestow a little responsibility on them by letting them stroll down the street on their own to buy ice cream. Davidson, a 31-year-old truck driver, had been snorting cocaine, methamphetamine and drinking all day with his friends when his Mitsubishi Triton smashed into those kids in Oatland in Sydney's northwest. It was a week after the first positive case in Australia of COVID-19. If we feared our world was about to change, we couldn't begin to imagine what happened to yours in that carriage of that night. Hmm. The news footage was unimaginable. The scale of what had been taken from you and your wife so incomprehensible, many of us had to look away. You could have locked your doors, kept the curtains drawn, let the grief and bitterness fester and gnaw at your insides until it destroyed you and what remained of your family. But Danny, you're not like most of us. I was at a crossroads in my life. You admitted, the hardest question as a parent is, can you lose your whole family with bitterness and seek revenge? Or can you keep half your family and find forgiveness? So you visited Davidson in prison where he was serving a maximum sentence of 20 years. How could you walk in there and not want to throttle him? to watch whatever light remained in his eyes slowly fade to nothing. I shook his hand and he fell to his knees, Danny said. He put his head on the floor and said to me, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I took your kids. And Danny, that wasn't the first time you provided absolution to Davidson either. A week into his sentence, you started receiving messages from inside the prison. Its inmates were no different to the rest of us. One of them said, a guy who was angry with what had happened said, mate, he's gone. You diffused the situation. I said, leave him alone. He's forgiven. You told the Christian website Eternity. How did that man plotting to hurt Davidson respond? He sent you a message with emoji tears and wrote, After you forgave him, you've broken me. So just keep doing what you're doing, Danny. In a world burning with hate, where so many lives are crueled daily by retribution, keep promoting your I forgive day which he's proposing all Australians participate in on February 1, a National Day of Forgiveness.
Danny's wife, Leela, is now pregnant again. That tells me something about Danny and his relationship with Christ. He has been made new. Because that's what you do when you're made new. You might think, I could never do that. And the answer is, you're right, unless you know Christ and his spirit fills you. And that word that he offers to you, be made new, is right near you. What does it say? The word is near you. It's now in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which is where he was coronated Lord, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is where Christianity is steak on the plate while you wait. But you're not waiting for heaven, for God to do something new in you. You put Jesus on now. Paul, in concluding his epistle to the Romans, he said this, Put on the Lord Jesus. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Would you please stand? We have no hope outside of Christ. It's Christ alone. In Christ alone is our hope. You are not a million miles away from God. You are just one prayer away. A prayer that says, Jesus, forgive me. As Pete opened this service, he prayed that prayer. God, forgive us of our sins. That can be your prayer now because as we come more into the presence of the unapproachable light of Christ, those dark corners of our heart and life become exposed. Those things that we've said to our wife or our husband in anger and with venom and vengeance, that needs the light of Christ. That's got to stop because you've been made new. That child angry at her mother, storming off. That's got to stop because you, young lady, have been made new. And the Spirit of God wants to continue to make you new into who God has called you to be. I said to you, then in looking at the Lordship of Christ, it should drive us to worship. And that is exactly what I hope we'll do right now in Christ. Let's worship. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, those who encountered Jesus of Nazareth met someone who knew everything about them. And those who meet him now experience the same thing. The King of the Universe knows you and loves you. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.